0: Most people's framework for social networking comes from whatever their first experience was, Facebook or Instagram, You know that is a social network and anything that doesn't look like that must not be a social network. And there was a lot of folks that did try to launch a social network for kids and they would make it basically a kid-safe version of exactly what Facebook was or exactly what Instagram was. And our whole theory was, first of all, kids don't act the same way as adults. They don't wanna be entertained the same way as adults. Their whole social structure, they spend all day with them. It's called school. And that is the way that they interact with their friends. They're not going to go home and jump on a Facebook for Kids type experience in order to interact with the same kids that they've been spending eight hours with. And so our theory was what what they want to do is play together. And so let's basically create a giant virtual playground so they can extend their play, not post pictures of, well, I was in math class again today and so were you and so were you and so were you. Because (laughs) that's what their life is at that age, right?
1: You just heard a fantastic example of how to properly execute one of the most common but misunderstood entrepreneurial strategies. I'm talking about the X for Y strategy, as in entrepreneurs running around trying to build things like Uber for dogs or Amazon for plant lovers. When you take that approach to launching a new venture, you can't just repackage something that already exists and try selling it to a different audience. You have to carefully consider how the new audience is fundamentally different, and build your product to fit its unique needs. That's exactly what our guest on this episode of Webmasters did, and he did it really well. His name is Lane Merrifield, and he's one of the co-founders of Club Penguin, the wildly popular children's social network. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hey there and welcome to another episode of Webmasters. This is the podcast that teaches about entrepreneurship by talking with the internet's most impactful early innovators. My name is Aaron Dinan. In a previous life, I was a serial entrepreneur. These days, I spend my time teaching entrepreneurship at Duke University. And that's part of what makes the topic for this episode particularly relevant for my current students because they all grew up loving Club Penguin. In other words, yeah, this episode is really just an attempt to make me and my podcast seem cooler to my students. Pretty sure it's going to fail, but hey, that's okay. There's still plenty to learn for everyone listening, and we're going to find out what that is after I take a moment to tell you about this podcast's sponsor. Webmasters wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our sponsor, Latona's. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like content websites, e commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and even subscription based online games or social networks, kind of like we'll be talking about in this episode. If you have something like that, it's profitable, but you're ready to step away and try something else, then give Latona's a call. Their team of experienced and specialized brokers are ready to help you sell your company for top dollar. Or maybe you're trying to buy an already profitable internet business. Latonas can help you with that too. Check out the Latonas website where you'll find tons of listing for profitable internet businesses that you can buy and start operating immediately. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. So I'm not actually in the right demographic to know much about Club Penguin and I'm not sure how many of you listeners would know much about it either. After all it was, depending how you want to look at it, either a social network or a massively multiplayer online game, MMOG, meant for kids that was popular in the mid 2000s. That wasn't me and it might not have been a lot of you either. If I'm being honest, I hadn't even heard of Club Penguin, at least that I can remember, until I overheard a few of my students joking about it at the start of class one day and decided to do some research. That took me down quite the rabbit hole of old YouTube videos. Unfortunately, I can't show those videos here. What I can do, however, is have this episode's guest, Lane Merrifield, explain what Club Penguin was in his own words.
0: On the surface, Club Penguin was about logging in. We used Flash at the time, so you didn't have to download or install anything. So it was kind of a web-based game you could jump into really quickly and easily. And the whole idea was you became a penguin, and you could choose your color penguin. You chose your screen name. It wasn't supposed to be your real name, obviously, for privacy reasons and childhood protection reasons. And every penguin had an igloo, so you could kind of decorate your igloo. You could decorate your penguin with clothing. And we were also one of the first games that we're started doing events. You know, Now, like Fortnite and others, in fact, a lot of our team uh, work at Epic uh, on the Fortnite team. And so they just pulled a lot of the same playbook over, which is great. I, I, you know, My kids love Fortnite, and I, I think it's awesome. But, you know, so doing events, whether they're based around public holidays or whether they were just our own creation, but there was always kind of this cycle of new content coming out every single week. And so, yes, become a penguin. You have your igloo. And you play mini-games throughout this world. The world's broken up into different rooms. And you're surrounded by other penguins. So you can see up to 50 to 100 different penguins in the room with you at the time. And you can kind of waddle around. You can throw snowballs at each other. You can chat with each other. And you play these little mini-games. You earn coins with the mini-games. And then you can spend those coins on decorating your penguin, decorating your igloo. And so it was kind of this cycle that we built in. Um, And, of course, there's new content coming out for decorating every single week.
1: And I've got to ask, even though I'm sure it's a question you've been asked a million times, why penguins?
0: Well, uh, so there's two reasons. The, the first one, the more altruistic reason, is because we we loved we really did love the fact that penguins as a s- species require community to survive. And, and so they do need to work together if you've ever watched you know, March of the Penguins or something like that. We liked that they were a gender-neutral animal. So you know, we wanted this to be equal for boys and girls. And in fact, the audience was down to a couple of percentage points, almost 50-50, male and female. And penguins are just funny. They waddle. They're birds that don't really fly. They swim. Uh, And there was a sense of we really tried to incorporate as much of a sense of humor into it as we could. Uh, In fact, we would, you know, while every other game out there is trying to, like, be the... I always said like the MTV for kids, like trying to be really cool and be really with it and be really, we were like the antithesis of that. And I think it's part of why people love it still to this day is that we, we were the anti-cool game. Uh, We were the game for everyone else who didn't want to have to worry about that stuff when they came home from school and they just wanted to have fun and goof around. And, you know, I have photos that friends sent me of their like, 17-year-old kids, 18-year-old kids logging in and playing Club Penguin every day. You know, they wouldn't tell their friends about it because they were already too cool for it, too old for it. But there's this charm and this sense of humor and they just wanted to see what the new event was that came out of the new party. We had these parties every single month and so that was a big draw as well.
1: And for what it's worth, when I first overheard my students talking about Club Penguin, they were joking about how old they were when they finally stopped playing it. So Lane isn't lying when he describes it as being something wildly popular with kids. In fact, at its height, it had over 200 million registered accounts worldwide. So where did this idea come from? And more importantly, how the heck did pretending to be a penguin become so popular? To find out, let's start by hearing a bit more about how Lane first got interested in computers.
0: For me, computers were just kind of emerging in school as I was growing up in in elementary school and junior high. And uh, I found that I would get extra credit because my handwriting was so bad. I'm sure I had ADHD and other things, but my handwriting was so bad that teachers would give me uh, extra credit for typing my homework up instead of handwriting it. And so I started using computers for that. Then I started upgrading my own computer at home. Then I'd start charging other people to upgrade their computers, just little stuff, upgrading the RAM and modems and things like that. And then at one point, I actually got out of some detentions because I noticed in one of the computer labs that they had had like 15 new computers delivered, but they were sitting in the corner of the classroom for about three months waiting for the IT guy from the school district to come around and set them up. And so I negotiated with the teacher, I said, I've got about 10 or 12 detentions I need written off. You know, typically, I wasn't like being a jerk or anything, I was typically just late or no show to classes. And so I made a deal with her, and she said, listen, if you set up those computers, I'll write off a detention for every single one you set up. And so I spent like two hours one afternoon setting them all up, getting them all dialed, making sure they're all working properly for her. She was thrilled, I was thrilled, because I got 15 hours of detentions written off for a couple of hours of work, and... uh, Yeah. And then from there, you know, I ended up selling computers, put myself through university and tech was always a very normal part of my life.
1: And when did you first discover the web and think to yourself, hey, this web thing is going to be something worth keeping an eye on?
0: Yeah. So I I, I literally remember sitting in front of my computer and a friend came over and he was like, hey, I want to show you this. And I had already been on, you know, BBSs at the time, bulletin board systems. So this is early days of like Prodigy, AOL, Apollo. I mean, there was like the earliest bulletin, which were basically just networks, but they were centralized networks. They weren't they weren't decentralized like the internet was. And so I was already downloading games and, and music and stuff like that uh, from those types of services. And then all of a sudden, a friend came over and said, hey, I'm going to log you into this thing called the internet. It's actually like a bunch of universities, but it's all interconnected and kind of explained it to me. And, and it took about three or four different pieces of software back then. You needed to, like... TCP IP socket connections and wind trumpet and all sorts of layers basically to, to get onto the internet. But I still remember kind of going in there and the speed and the just vastness of what was available because typically you'd hop from BBS to BBS to try and find what you're looking for and you'd hang up on one and dial into the next one with your, with your modem. And this was like everything that I could have hoped for uh, in one place. And, and uh, yeah, I was hooked and I never never turned back.
1: It sounds like you were already a fairly entrepreneurial person at a young age. So what do you think made you entrepreneurial and allowed you to recognize the entrepreneurial potential of the web?
0: Well, I grew up in a really entrepreneurial home. So we were always taught that, hey, the rules are kind of guidelines. Uh, You know, of course, the the big rules like don't hurt people, don't hurt yourself. Those were very, very serious. But the rest of them were always kind of more guidelines. And and I think as a result, every one of my siblings is entrepreneurial in some form or fashion. And and we all kind of grew up with this mentality of life is all a little bit of a game. And frankly, I feel like spoiled that I grew up when I did because I grew up when like some teachers didn't know what cut and paste was. So when I would be asked to write something 100 times or type something 100 times, I, you know, I'd write it once, cut and paste it play Oregon Trail or something on my computer for a little bit until they finally came around and then i print it off and hand it to them and they're like, wow, you did this so quickly, you did this so easily. So I almost felt like I was kind of always hacking the system a little bit. Innocent, but certainly ways that favored me. And I realized pretty early on that the further ahead I stayed in front of the curve and certainly in front of the general population with technology and with computers, The more opportunity that was there. And so, you know, I still remember in university, I was selling computers at a local electronics store and this older gentleman came in and he had just retired from his job. He wanted to be fully decked out in technology, but he had no idea how to use it. This is before like Geek Squad and stuff like that. So he bought one of the biggest orders I'd ever sold at the time and, you know, on commission for a commission sales guy, that was a big deal. And then he also said, hey, I'll pay you like $100 an hour to just come and teach me how to use all this stuff. So literally, I'd spend like Saturdays on my day off going and showing him how to like use a computer and use a digital camera and use a printer and use a scanner. And I realized it was kind of like having a superpower that other people hadn't discovered yet. Uh, They knew it was powerful, but they didn't quite know how to tap into it. And so kind of natural life encouragements, I guess.
1: I like pointing out this pattern when it shows up, which happens a lot on webmasters. The entrepreneurs we tend to hear from usually come from some sort of entrepreneurial household and from an early age, they learn that, to borrow Lane's words, most of the quote-unquote rules in life are more like guidelines. Or, as well-known business motivational guru Tim Ferriss writes in his most popular book, The 4-Hour Workweek, quote, The common sense rules of the real world are a fragile collection of socially reinforced illusions, and the manifest of the dealmaker is simple. Reality is negotiable. Outside of science and law, all rules can be bent or broken, and it doesn't require being unethical. Now, whether or not those sentiments are entirely true, or even healthy, I suppose we could debate, but the fundamental point they're making is certainly interesting and I'd agree with. Both Lane and Tim Ferriss are reminding us that successful entrepreneurs don't take things at face value. They love to question what most normal people think of as standard wisdom. And it's that ability to question standard wisdom that opens their eyes to new opportunities. This is exactly what Lane described at the beginning of this episode when you heard him talking about why other people's attempts to build social networks for kids never worked.
0: There was a lot of folks that did try to launch a social network for kids, and they would make it basically a kid-safe version of exactly what Facebook was or exactly what Instagram was. And our whole theory was, first of all, kids don't act the same way as adults. They don't want to be entertained the same way as adults. Their whole social structure, they spend all day with them. It's called school. And that is the way that they interact with their friends. They're not going to go home and jump on a Facebook for kids type experience in order to interact with the same kids that they've been spending eight hours with. And so our theory was what what they want to do is play together. And so let's basically create a giant virtual playground so they can extend their play, not post pictures of, well, I was in math class again today.
1: When Lane points out this insight, it seems obvious. Yeah, of course kids already hang out with their entire social networks all day. So why would they go onto a social network and post pictures of their days for those same people to see? In other words, the adult versions of social networks just don't make sense for kids. But that insight wasn't obvious. And at the time, lots of people were trying to create social networks for kids that were basically Facebook clones, but with better content moderation. You know what? All of those Facebook clones were failing. By this point, Lane was working for a small marketing firm in Canada where he found himself discussing the issue of child-friendly online content with a colleague named Lance Prebay. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And like Lane, Lance was also about to become a parent.
0: One of the guys in the company, he was quirky, He was really unique. The definition of kind of thinking differently, similar entrepreneur, like he kind of marched to the beat of his own drum. We couldn't have been more different from one another, but we would really connect around. We both were having our first kids at the same time together. So we were kind of talking about games we used to play and what games we can't teach our kids. And we were also at the same time watching this transition from MySpace to Facebook. We were playing different online games together and uh, we just had this connection around what is out there for our kids and what do we want our kids to play? And we kind of saw this big void and that was internet experiences were getting more and more social and the web was becoming more social at that time. And not just, you know, MySpace, Facebook, but also World of Warcraft was starting to take over traditional gaming and things like that. And we saw that kids were streaming onto these experiences and the going assumption was well they just want to play these grown-up games they just want to do these grown-up things that's what kids that's just what kids do and and our thinking was well yeah some of them do but also there isn't any alternative there's like reader rabbit single-player games for kids these ages and then there's like myspace and or facebook so what do you think they're going to want to do and so lance had already built some of these little mini games he was planning on kind of assembling them into a giant real-time strategy game that was like a risk type game and i'm like hey Maybe we should do something a little different here. And and so we talked about building more of a social experience with him. Um, and he was more the coder. I was more on the leadership side of things. And so we started brainstorming. Three months later, we went to our boss and said, hey, we think we're going to resign and go do this. And he said, well, why don't you do it here? All funnel in the profits. Uh, you guys invest what you can, and let's go after this.
1: Their boss was a man named Dave Crisco. And together, the three of them, Lane, Lance, and Dave, co-founded Club Penguin. At the time, none of them had visions of building a Silicon Valley, venture-style, enormous tech company. Heck, none of them had any clue just how much the thing they built was going to grow. But grow it did.
0: Lance had a small following of kids that were playing his games, his little mini-games prior. So we had a couple thousand kids that were on the email list and they were kind of logging into his website. So we put up a couple little banners on his existing games asking kids to help us test this. And they could invite someone, but it was like, send your email address and we'll send an invite code. And I was literally manually creating the codes and then (laughs) sending out invites. And in the first month, we went from those two or 3,000 kids to almost 15,000 kids just through the kind of invites. And so we knew we kind of had something special. Then we opened it up to the public. It started growing really quickly. But the real turning point for growth was when we joined up with Miniclip and we did a rev share deal with them. Miniclip was the largest online game website at the time. I think they had 40 or 50 million uniques a month, which at that point in in history was a pretty good-sized website. Deal with them, they featured us. And they said, normally, like, our traffic will destroy games like yours. We'll give you three months to kind of get ready, and then we'll turn it on. And I said, no, we'll be ready in one month. And so we hardened up our servers. We worked, you know, pulled all-nighters, did everything we could, got this thing out the door. Because I had this sense that the moment people figured out what we'd built, it's like the hunt will be on. Like someone firing a gun, and I can hear the dogs and the hunters behind me, and and we just got to start running. So we had this sense of, like, keep your head down focus on what we got to do and let's just go build this thing as fast as we can. So they ended up opening the traffic. Uh, We went down a couple times just as they were slowly turning on the tap and kind of bringing in more and more traffic. But eventually the server stabilized. We managed the traffic and it was just a rocket ship from there. Like we couldn't add servers fast enough. And this was pre AWS and virtualized servers. So we were literally ordering crates full of hardware gear to our server company. And they were manually building and putting servers online as fast as they could.
1: And so you were really obsessed with rapid growth. And was that because you were concerned about someone else stealing your idea or market opportunity?
0: Yeah. So again, we felt like that we wanted to grow and get as big and as large as we could before the big entertainment companies, the Disney's, Nickelodeon's of the world figured out who we were and what was going on. And so we would intentionally lie about our size to the powers that be, right? So we had Business Week and Forbes and they would see our ComScore metrics on the internet and they would see that, you know, at one point we were a top 20 website in the world and people were like, why, why are you getting all this traffic? What's going on? And they wanted to do interviews on us. And our mentality was like, in fact, our slogan around the office was, if it doesn't matter to an eight-year-old, it doesn't matter. So we said no to conferences. We wouldn't go to conferences. We wouldn't do anything that didn't matter to an eight-year-old. And being on the cover of Business Week or Forbes didn't matter to an eight-year-old. So we would just lie to them uh, when, our, when we get an email from a reporter saying, hey, we want to talk to you about your metrics and what's going on and what are you building. We just say, yeah, there's got to be a glitch with Comscore. We're not sure how that keeps happening, but we're trying to get to the bottom of it. Thanks, but you know, I don't think there's a story here. And we just pushed them off for probably a year at least. People started getting wiser and wiser to the fact that no, this is not an anomaly. But even still, we'd turn it down because it, it wasn't about our ego It was about serving kids and no kid was going to be served by us running around tooting our own horns. And in fact, it just was a big distraction. And back then, it's like every minute mattered because it was either I was taking care of three or four million kids around the world or I wanted to be home and taking care of my own kids and sitting on the phone with a reporter just didn't matter. It wasn't going to grow our company.
1: And in retrospect, how much should you have been concerned with people stealing the idea?
0: I think, you know, it was obviously, I, I, I wouldn't have done it the same way now. I, I, you know, I was young and a bit naive to what we were executing and how, what was second nature to us and just the way that we were thinking about it, the way we were tackling the problem felt very natural. And, and it almost seemed like, well, anyone would think of this, you know, we just thought of it first. And so we got to get out there.
1: You said you wouldn't do things the same way now. So does that mean people copying you wasn't as big of an issue as you thought?
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think. Well, it's funny, actually. Yahoo was looking for games for Yahoo Games. And so we called them up and they were looking for a company that would do a pool like a billiards game for them. And we were on the list of companies that were making flash based (laughs) games and that's what they were looking for. So they called us up and we said, well, we don't have a billiards game and we don't really have time to make one. At this point in time, I think Penguin was already 10 or 15 million active users or 20 million active users. So we were just focused on that. But we said, but we've got this other game that we just launched, this virtual world that we launched that we'd love to show to you. So they said, sure, we'll you know have a meeting. And we showed it to them and no interest. We got 10 minutes in and they said, listen, this is done. This is no one's ever gonna play this. Uh we're not interested. But we know that you know Disney's been buying some games for their online kind of stable. Maybe you should reach out to them. So I actually reached out to them. And at the time, We had already internally decided we would be willing to sell for $4 million because we'd realized, okay, that's enough that we can kind of take care of the team. And that was kind of in our head. And we expected we were going to get an offer because everyone was going to see how brilliant this was. We got further through the Disney pitch, but Disney sent a little bit more friendly email afterwards, but basically, and I kept the email, I still have it to this day, said, you know, if we wanted something like this, we would just build it ourselves. Thanks, but no thanks. Thanks.
1: Remember that thing we discussed earlier in the episode about how entrepreneurs are usually trained from an early age to question what everyone else thinks of as common sense and the established rules of society? The story you just heard is one of the things to watch out for once you do start questioning everything. Eventually, you'll recognize a seemingly obvious opportunity in the market and you're going to worry everyone else sees it too and that they're going to try to steal it. That's not actually the case. You're forgetting that you see the world differently than everyone else. So what looks obvious to you actually looks ridiculous to most other people. This is kind of what happened to Lane. Club Penguin was doing great because his users, who were all kids, loved it. But the adults, the people who make business decisions, just didn't get it.
0: Funny story about that. The Club Penguin Wikipedia page kept going up because kids were submitting it. And then the wiki foundation or whatever kept pulling it down and then they'd resubmit it and, kept, and it probably went up and down about seven times. And the foundation kept saying, well, this is not culturally relevant or something like that. You know, we would have like three million kids logging in on a Saturday and then Wikipedia sending us an email that says that it's not relevant to society in any way to keep your page up.
1: What were some of your big insights, do you think? What made Club Penguin so successful? Why did kids, your users, love it so much?
0: We created the world in a way that it was about celebrating the kids' creativity. Like, it wasn't about us. We kind of considered ourselves stewards. And in fact, we had built this loop intentionally where we'd kind of spark an idea, put it out to the community and say, hey, what should we do with this? Let their ideas come in. Oftentimes there's kind of some themes that would come in with their ideas. And then we'd make some decisions on which one of those ideas we wanted to pull from. Uh, and we 'd have millions of different ideas and feeds that came in, and then we would turn those ideas into reality and then you know give it back out to the community and It was kind of like a choose your own adventure experience as the narrative threads ran through the world as the different events came in and it for everyone inside and outside the company, it just, it wasn't about us. It was about the kids. And I think that that was so true to, I mean, I think that was a big reason for its success. I think that was the reason why the kids felt they, the way they do, the reason why they still talk about it today when so many other kids' experiences and games and everything have kind of come and gone. I think that was really special because it was about taking their imaginations and making them real rather than just being about our imaginations.
1: Can you give an example?
0: Yeah, well, we had a blog that was kind of one of our primary points. And then there was a ton of fan sites that the kids had built, you know, YouTube sites and others. And so we were constantly watching those. And so we would put, we had like a weekly newspaper that was published, the Penguin Times, uh, which one of our fun stats was that it was more widely read than the New York Times uh, (laughs) every week. And the Penguin Times would release some sort of a story, like, oh, there was white fur discovered in the mountains. And, you know, scientists are trying to figure out what the white fur was. Well, then we would see our fan sites and our blog and everyone light up with like, I know what it is. It's probably a giant puffle. It's probably a this. It's probably a that. You know, I bet it's this. I bet it's that. And we would just listen and we'd go, oh, that's a cool idea. We like that one. Let's do that. Let's do that. And so, you know, like one of the antagonist, the only antagonist in the world, Herbert, the giant polar bear, who, you know, of course, the grown-up humor in it is that polar bears are typically in the Arctic and penguins are typically in the uh, Antarctica. And so the idea was, the story that we did is that Herbert was tired of the cold and so he jumped on a floating iceberg and, and was hoping to float down towards the the equator and he fell asleep and kept on floating and ended up on Club Penguin Island and is so angry about it that he's taking it out on these penguins. And so he's kind of a like slightly lovable but angry polar bear. And that story, that narrative came from just dropping a hint about this white fur that was found in the mountains. And and it was kids themselves that said, maybe it's a polar bear. And we just took that and ran with it. The artists, of course, had a blast with it. And a new character was born in the world. And that happened every single week. We were storytellers. It was basically, in fact, we would send our writers to improv classes because we would use improv as an analogy of what we were doing with the kids. It was kind of a constant yes and improv experience. Uh, And we were writing these stories in real time right alongside them. And as a result, they owned them. You know, it was their world. It was their stories. It was their experience. They weren't just partaking in ours.
1: Okay, so kids loved it because you were great at incorporating their creativity. But this was a subscription service, right? And the kids weren't paying the monthly bills. So can you talk about your business model and how that
0: worked? Yeah, so we we wanted it to be safe. Our own kids were playing and we we really valued that and, and knew that because we weren't going to put advertising on the site, we'd always planned on having a subscription model. And the subscription model demanded that we keep parents on site and keep parents happy because they're ultimately our customers, our paying customers. So safety was paramount and it wasn't just about building kind of users. It was about obviously growing subscribers at the time. And even that ironically, a bit of a tangent, but this was pre Netflix. And so I kept the articles where we were openly mocked for thinking that a subscription model on the internet would ever be successful by media and by the press, because um, even early game press were like, they're not charging 60 bucks for a cartridge and everything online is ad driven. They're publicly saying that they're not putting ads on their website. And it was basically like, yeah, well, it's fun while it lasted. See you later. Subscriptions will never work online. Fast forward, obviously, to today when, (laughs) when there's a lot of subscriptions. We all have way too many of them. But yeah, so we knew we wanted to build something that was more playground-like. You know, we, In fact, we call it a virtual playground because the term virtual world was still kind of in its infancy back then. And that's just how we would describe it to people. And the goal was give them the tools. The best playgrounds are not the ones that are like prescriptive play. Like, okay, here's station one. Here's what you have to do. Here's station two. Here's what you have to do, which is what most levels were in games and things like that. Our goal was to say the best playgrounds have the biggest jungle gyms or the coolest fort-like castles or... The, you know, best sand or whatever, like just give them the best tools and then let them let their imaginations make of it what they will. And so that was a lot of what we focused on. In fact, we would study childhood play patterns and imaginative play. We did a lot of research on that. And we just incorporated that in for every different age group that we could make it as enjoyable as possible.
1: It's interesting that you knew you didn't want advertising from the beginning because, as you mentioned, that's kind of how everything like this made money online back then. Why were you so opposed to advertising?
0: Well, two things. Number one, kids, the age group that, in the demo that we were working with, all the research shows how impressionable they are, how, which is part of why people love to advertise to them. But for a lot of kids, even in those early days, ads were pretty shady and would look like games, so kids wouldn't even know what they were clicking on. And so all of a sudden they'd click on something and they'd end up jumping from like a breakfast cereal company and then they click on another ad and then and they'd kind of end up in all these off places of the internet that had nothing to do with kids uh, so there's a lot of that happening we call it ad jumping because they would just jump from one ad to the next and then all of a sudden you know end up in like a porn site or something uh, unfortunately because google wasn't dominating adwords and all of that yet so they were just it wasn't as organized as it, as it is today and second of all we just felt like kids are bombarded with ads all the time on TV, on you know the radio, on whatever. And we wanted a place that was ad free and we could kind of let it be a more pure creative place as a result. You know, it's the same reason why a lot of museums don't put up billboards right next to paintings and stuff like that. It kind of cheapens the experience a bit. And we wanted it to be a really immersive experience. We wanted it to be something that didn't have distractions, didn't have a Froot Loops ad running across the top of it or something like that. In hindsight, I think we ended up being more profitable as a result as well. That was the other thing we kept secret was how profitable it was and how much parents clearly did want to pay for a safe, ad-free experience for their kids. And how did you think about keeping kids safe? I mean, that seems like it would have been a huge problem. Behind the scenes, our moderators and our team were passionate about giving kids a safe place. And the idea was No matter how rough their home life is, no matter how rough their day is at school, no matter how kind of complicated the rest of their world is, this is a safe place where they're not going to be picked on. They're not going to be bullied. They're not going to be expected to do anything or be anything other than just whoever they are and do whatever they want to do and create a safe space for that. And, you know, even moderation, like we were investing 10 to 15 million dollars a year into our moderation engines and our tools for that and even doing things like passive filtering. So, you know, the old mantra, if you can't say anything nice, don't say it at all. We had a blacklist of words that you that you weren't allowed to say. You're obviously swear words and things. You get a warning, and then after you'd say it again, you'd get kicked out for 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever. And that was to try and curb, you know, the blatant swearing. But then there's words like jerk. Well, some families use jerk every single day at, at home. And others, it's a swear word. And so... How do we manage things like that? Because everyone parents differently. So we had this massive gray list that we were adding to daily of, of words that were basically just not positive. They weren't bad words, but they just weren't positive. And so if you and I were to log in and be looking at our penguins, you could say, hey, you're a jerk. And you would see yourself say it, but no one else in the world would see it. And in fact, you'd be just sitting there silent as far as I was concerned. And unless you pulled up both windows side by side, you couldn't test that filter. And what that meant was you could sit there and go, you're a jerk. You're a jerk. I hate you. Right? You haven't sworn. You haven't done anything. You've just been not really positive. Uh, Let's go sledding. Blink, blink. All of a sudden that pops up. I see you said something now. And so now I'll respond. Yeah, let's go sledding. Sounds good. And so there was this psychological benefit we saw unfold where kids just felt inherently that Club Penguin was not the place to goof around and be a jerk. Like Club Penguin is just the place. It's like Disneyland. Like, You don't go into Disneyland with a can of spray paint and start tagging Main Street. No matter how much you might have done that at some point at some other place, it just has this sense of joy and fun, and it created this sense of positivity that I think is why it still has such a a soft spot in people's hearts today.
1: That's certainly one reason people still remember Club Penguin. Another reason is that Lane and his team were able to scale it into a worldwide phenomenon, but they didn't do it on their own. Remember that conversation with Disney where Lane was hoping to get $4 million for Club Penguin? Well, it turned out to be lucky for Lane that Disney didn't want the deal back then, because a couple years later, Disney's M&A team came calling and ultimately wound up buying Club Penguin for a reported $350 million. Lane and his team decided to sell to Disney specifically because it was the company that seemed most capable of helping them grow. And in a lot of ways, they were right.
0: So we had this kind of rocket ship it was taking off. It was, as much as that kind of growth is exciting and fantastic, it also can kind of take, its, take a bit of a toll as well. And we realized that our growth outside of North America was happening just as fast as it was inside North America and in some countries faster. And we didn't want to like geo block certain countries because we wanted the, the vision was we wanted kids from around the world to play together. The problem was, is that our moderation and everything was English only and our moderation at the time, our safety people were on like split eight hour shifts. So we had 16 hours of moderation, but then there was obviously gaps. We didn't necessarily want to start running 24 hour shifts and, and we just knew we needed to open up some other offices around the world because there's certain, you know, languages and other things we couldn't all service from from uh, North America. We also had a huge demand for toys and consumer products that was growing. They were selling really well. Like we, I think, you know, our first year we launched some some toys. We made like five or six million bucks just from these little stuffed puffles that we put on the website. But again, we didn't have any expertise in that. We didn't want to get distracted with it. And so the three of us sat down and we had all bootstrapped it. You know, there was no investors, there was no board. It was literally just the three of us founders kind of, we sat down in a room and we said, okay, what do we want to spend our time doing? Lane, do you want to go run around the world and lease office space and hire teams? Or do we want to focus on the the experience and focus on what we love to do, which is building parties for kids for a living and not necessarily running around doing logistics. So, So that was part of it as well. And we were increasingly nervous about, Again, just our ability to continue to grow this thing under our own weight. And so we went out on a search. There was, I think, six companies at first. And one by one, we'd start kicking them out of the process for one reason or another. And then we ended up with kind of two or three companies, Disney obviously being one of them. And Disney wasn't even the highest bidder either. I think just culturally and from a values and mission perspective, they most aligned. And and they had instant infrastructure. You know, they had teams of people that knew how to make toys and knew how to make TV shows. And they had offices all over the world that we could tap into, you know, from the very beginning. So they kind of sped up our international growth, probably accelerated it by at least a year or two. And did you keep
1: working on Club Penguin at Disney or did you step away at that point?
0: I didn't know what the term exit was like. It wasn't this wasn't a Bay Area startup. It was three guys who built a company and we wanted to keep doing it. Um, We just wanted to do the fun parts and not have to do the really complicated, you know, international parts that we hadn't done before. So yeah so Lance stayed on for about two, three years. you know Dave because Dave was always more the investment guy and so he kind of he he took his money and uh bought a castle in Germany and started a bunch of nonprofits and yeah, I mean he and he was awesome. he was living the dream and then uh, he was older than us as well, so he was a little bit more ready for that. Lance stayed on for two, three years and then he wanted to go start a different games company and do some new things and and i I stayed on the longest I stayed on for five years, yeah, until i you know, it was just hard to work for a big company from a distance because I was still in Canada raising my kids and obviously the headquarters was in Burbank. So there's some friction there and I'd kind of met the goals. You know, I wanted Penguin to be a billion dollar brand and, and we'd done that. And so I was happy about that and I wanted to build my own succession. So I hired my successor. I worked with him for 18 months, kind of prepped him and, and he was ready and, and I was ready. So we made the move.
1: Nobody knew it at the time, but if you look back at the history of Club Penguin, Lane leaving in 2012 pretty much marked the beginning of the end. It would continue on for a few more years, but by 2017, Disney had had enough. Club Penguin was still generating millions in revenues, but the operating expenses had grown so much that it wasn't profitable. On March 30th of that year, Club Penguin was shut down. Which begs the question, what does Lane think about Club Penguin's ultimate fate?
0: I'm really sad with what kind of Disney ended up doing with the world afterwards. You know, I think when I left, we had all the right pieces in place. And naturally, you have like new management, new leadership that comes in. And then it kind of gets passed along and passed along. And it, it just ended up kind of becoming a shell of what it was. I didn't really have the energy to keep trying to kind of protect it and keep its purity intact. For Disney... Brands are invented in movies and they're invented in TV. They're not invented in the internet. You know, for Disney, the internet was a marketing vehicle. And so when I look at kind of what was going on before Club Penguin, before they shut it down, it was really sad to watch because it was basically a marketing vehicle for their movies. Every party was themed around the Frozen 2 party and the Iron Man 4 party. And, the you know, and it was just it literally they had turned it into a giant marketing vehicle. And the kids... They didn't love it. They weren't fans of it. And they kind of slowly were walking away from it. And the other problem was, is even though it was still generating a healthy amount of revenue, they had layered on so many internal costs. You know, it was on now the Disney servers and the Disney cloud, which has its own internal kind of cost structure associated with it. And so even though it was, I think at the time that they shut it down, it was still generating 30 or $40 million a year. They had weighed it down so much with internal costs that it still wasn't profitable. Yeah, so I'm, I'm disappointed that it went the way it did.
1: Have you ever talked to Disney about starting it back up? I mean, if anyone
0: loves a good reboot, it's Disney, right? Both Lance and I have tried to buy it back. Uh, we've tried to license it back. And, you know, no joy. They, they would rather keep it shut down. I understand why Disney's not doing it. It's a no-win situation for them, right? If they let us take on, take on the brand again and we build something great, then, yeah, they can make some more bucks. But it shows that they were the reason why it shut down. And if... We take it on and we crash and burn while well, then it potentially harms the brand, a brand that they own and is part of their stable and that they might want to do something with someday. So, yeah, so that's that part's kind of disappointing. And I there's no one person I pin that on. I think it just you get enough people in a big enough organization and kind of group thing takes over and, and off you go.
1: In a few words, Lane just summed up pretty much how all successful companies eventually wind up closing down. Eventually they become a victim of their own success, that appears to be what happened to Club Penguin too. But not before having a good 12 year run as one of the most popular places on the internet for kids. It was their social network. Sure, it didn't look like social networks all the adults were using. But that was also a huge part of what made it so successful. To see that opportunity it took an entrepreneur who, from an early age, was taught to question the world around him and recognize that the quote unquote rules of the world are actually more like guidelines. And hey, speaking of rules, if you enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did, there's no rule that says you can't listen to it another 20 times. And while you're at it, please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app and share webmasters with everyone you know. I appreciate any help you give in spreading inspirational stories like Lane's to as many people as possible. Of course, I want to thank Lane Merrifield for taking the time to share that story. If you're curious about what he's up to these days, you can catch him on television. He's one of the dragons on Dragon's Den, which was the Canadian show that inspired Shark Tank in the United States. He's also on Twitter at Lane Merrifield. Be sure to follow him so you'll know when he finally does get permission from Disney to launch the next iteration of Club Penguin. As I joked before, if any company is willing to resurface old IP in order to make a quick buck, it's Disney, and let's be honest, none of us are complaining. I for one am excited for the Club Penguin TV show that's surely going to appear on Disney Plus within the next few years. A quick thanks to our sound engineer Ryan Higgs for pulling together this episode another thanks to our sponsor latonas don't forget if you're in the market to buy or sell an internet business be sure to visit latonas.com and also don't forget to subscribe to webmasters so you get the next episode as soon as it's released in just a few days until then well i guess it's time for me to sign off goodbye I'm sure this is another one of those questions you've been asked a million times, but I feel like I still have to ask it. Do your kids think you're basically the coolest dad ever, or do they not care?
0: Yeah, you know what? It's funny. At the time, I don't think they did. I think to them, I was just the nerdy dad who made stupid dad jokes all the time. I think now they think it's a little bit cooler. Uh, I know my son does. My son's actually going to university right now for video game design, which is... Pretty funny, especially when some like old school people will be like, "Video game design? Are you nervous? Do you think he's?" G-? I'm like, "Well, video games are paying for his university right now, so I, I uh, I'm not that nervous about it being a future in it." Yeah, so I think to them, I'm just I'm just a bit of a nerdy dad, and in fact. That was also one of the reasons why I left Disney at the time. I was traveling. I mean, we had eight offices around the world. I was constantly on the road. I would spend like 24 hours in Australia so that I could fly home and spend time with my kids before I'd have to fly off to England. And I was asked that exact same question by a reporter once in Australia during one of these 24-hour stints. And he said, oh, your kids must think you're a pretty cool dad. And I realized I hadn't seen my kids in like three and a half weeks. And I, in that moment, kind of felt my heart sink and I felt like kind of a hypocrite I'm running around the world talking about this thing that I built for my kids. And yet that very thing is turning me into kind of a shitty dad. So it it was certainly for me, the beginning of the end of me going, okay, I gotta, I gotta be done with this because I, I need to reset my priorities a bit.